This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Danny Hewson and I'm joined by Laura Souter. Hi, Laura. Hi there. We've got lots of government moves to cover this week, all aimed at easing that cost of living pressure on our finances. And Danny is also going to be bringing you the latest markets news, including Tesla's record delivery, US-China tensions, and JD Sports emerging into new markets. Dan Coatsworth speaks to Nick Greenwood from MyGo Opportunities Trust about takeover potential in the renewable energy and infrastructure space. And we'll also be looking at the latest figures on how much tax we're all being charged on our savings. But as ever, we'll dive into markets first. So let's start with those US-China tensions. Danny, I feel like this was a regular topic a few years ago, but has died down a bit. So what's happening now? Well, this has been ratcheted up in the last few months, and it is primarily about dominance in the advanced tech realm. And chips, you know, those semiconductors that we were talking so much about in the wake of the pandemic because of a shortage, well, they're really the pawns on the board here. Now, the latest twist in this tit-for-tat war was delivered by China, and it came on the 4th of July, an American holiday, and also just days before US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is heading to Beijing, uh, all because she's attempting to steady economic ties. So it really does set a bit of a hostile tone. So what Beijing did on Monday was set export restrictions on two minerals that the US says are essential to the production of semiconductors and also other advanced technology like weapons technology. Um, so this is restrictions of two metals, gallium and germanium. And every time I see that, I want to call it geranium, but it's germanium. Um, and I've they're been not things that I'm particularly aware of, I must admit. But <laughs> No, neither am I. And I have been learning an awful lot about these two minerals. Um, they are apparently hugely important in creating semiconductors, also electric vehicles. So what we've had following this announcement by China is US companies in particular, but also European companies, rushing to try and secure supplies. Um, lots of people worried that maybe these curbs will impact the cost. And we've already seen the cost of these things ratcheting up. Um, but also the potential that it could expand, causing even more disruption to global supply chains with a lot of speculation that maybe it could also then move on to rare earth. Now, don't ask me to go into that because I'm... <laughs> I wasn't going to. <laughs> I am not a geologist. I don't have a clue. But what we have seen is we've seen shares in the China companies that export these metals, seeing surging uh, share prices. We've also seen shares in Australian companies that uh, export these rare earths, seeing their sh share price ratchet up, which also suggests that the industry is concerned that this could be the next thing that China takes a look at. Um, it was about 12 years ago in a dispute with China that it restricted 
rare earth exports. And this is causing quite a lot of consternation. So we had the US semiconductor maker um, AXT Inc. saying that um, its Chinese manufacturing bit would now seek permits to keep exporting these two things. But that permit is expected to take several months to happen. We also heard from Intel, a spokesman there saying the company was assessing the um, statement, um, adding our strategy of having a diverse global supply chain minimizes our risk to local changes and interruptions. But China is a massive producer of these metals. Something like 90% comes out of China. So obviously trying to find other places, other companies to get these things from is tricky. And we all saw what happened to prices when we had this chip shortage. Remember, it was right after the pandemic beginning to reopen. We saw all those issues with supply chains. And that, of course, led to the inflation situation that we are in at the moment. So this is something which a lot of investors, a lot of companies, and a lot of governments are keeping a really close eye on. And let's stick stateside for now, um, because we've had some positive news out of Tesla, haven't we, the electric car maker? Yeah, so we have. price cuts there have led to um, a record number of car sales, haven't they, which must be making Elon Musk happy. Well, I think he's a bit distracted with the launch of Threads, which is um, the meta um, answer to Twitter. Um, I don't know. Are you a Twitter user, Laura? I mean, increasingly not so. I used to be. I still have an account, but I don't use it that often anymore. Have you tried any of the other options that were sort of touted when Musk took over? No, I'm basically such a late adopter of new technology and social media that I will come around to these things in about two decades' time, I think. But I know you're an Instagram <laughs> user, which could yeah. mean that threads could be the place where you sort of find your home. So that's launched and it'd be really interesting to see whether or not that is a real disruptor to this space. But I digress um, because, yeah, Elon Musk is a pretty happy guy. So um, we had record quarter for Tesla. So nearly 480,000 vehicles were produced. Um, about 466,000 were delivered. Now, we, we don't get sales figures from Tesla. So this is pretty much the equivalent that we look at with that. But, you know, these second quarter figures are not far off double what we saw in the same period last year and were uh, in excess of the expectation from analysts, which, of course, all added to Tesco's pretty chunky share rise. I mean, we're talking about 142% Tesla shares have gone up this year, valuing the company at $820 billion. Um, it kind of suggests that this plan is working. Of course, we saw massive discounts announced by Tesla um, and they're now seeing demand for those cheaper models really ratchet up. So um, we know also that, that China is playing a big part in this. So um, I think uh, wholesale deliveries were around 250,000 in the three months to June. Um, and we also know that 96% um, of these second quarter deliveries in the States were these cheaper models. Um, and, and a lot of these 
um, the two most popular models are now um, eligible for this tax credit um, of $7,500 under the Inflation Reduction Act. But what investors do need to be aware of is that clearly, if extra sales are happening, great. Tesla is also anticipating that it's going to be able to ratchet up production, great. But it does lead to the expectation that margins are going to be further eroded. So it really does, for investors, matter what Tesla says in its next update, which we're expecting in a couple of weeks, how they achieved these deliveries. And there is a lot of concern about potential short selling here. And clearly, this is something Elon Musk is worried about because he tweeted before this announcement of these second quarter deliveries, please advise people to be wary of margin loans. Tesla has always been a high variability stock, often with no obvious rhyme or reason. We're confident about long-term value creation, but can't control the manic depressive nature of the stock market. So that does seem to suggest that margins will be significantly curtailed. The stock price could then fall unless it raises its guidance for the third quarter. So it's just something really to bear in mind when you are looking at all of this good news. And it is good news for Tesla, particularly in terms of charging, because we've seen quite a string of advances there. So um, we've had Ford, Rivian, and general makers all announcing deals to use Tesla's charging technology. We've also had Texas and Kentucky saying that they're going to insist that Tesla's charging technology is included in the state-subsidized charging network. So this really does demonstrate Tesla's position in this burgeoning EV market. Um, So one to watch, but certainly things to consider. And quite a switcheroo now from car makers into sportswear, but sportswear brand JD Sports has announced a big move into the Middle East. What's driving that decision there? So we've known for a while that um, JD Sports is making big moves. Um, Three billion pounds worth of plans to open between two and 300 stores right across the globe over the next five years. And this is the first ever franchise agreement. Um, So it, it is looking really to tap into massive demand for athleisure wear in the increasingly sports mad Middle East. So JD Sports reckons that this is going to be a pivotal move. We've had a recent report by DataBridge predicting that the um, sports apparel market in the Middle East could reach a value of 23 US dollars by 2029. So that's a, a a compound annual growth of 4.8%. So it's a pretty chunky. You know, this strategy is all part of JD's new CEO, Regis Schultz strategy. He laid this out for investors at an investor day in February. And it is a a pretty big deal. You know, we're we're talking about uh, 50 stores in the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Egypt by 2018. Um, The company says that it is a pivotal move in the continued expansion into underpenetrated markets. But there are question marks about investment 
in places like Saudi, there's been a lot of question marks about the use of sport in terms of sort of distracting people's attention away from some of the practices in Saudi Arabia, sort of allegations of sports washing. But just in terms of of growth for JD, um, this is a pretty nifty move, and it will certainly distract attention away from the fact that sales growth in May slowed down. There was also softer recent trading in the North America business. So the athleisure sector really has been impacted. Um, it was a first earnings miss in three years that we got from Nike, which is one of JD Sports' key brand partners recently. So lots of questions about how the cost of living situation might impact the likes of JD Sports, which is aiming to top a billion pounds worth of profits next year. And finally, for the market segment, we've had some positive news out of Sainsbury's, which actually I think is quite cheering news for all of us who are still slightly weeping at the checkout when we get the final bill for how much our food shop is costing us. But there's positive news on the horizon, isn't there, Danny? There is positive news. So um, the Sainsbury's boss has said food prices are not rising as fast as they were. Hooray. Not coming down, but they're not rising as fast as they were. Now, what does this mean for Sainsbury's? Well, it means that um, its last figures, it saw an increase of nearly 10% in the value of goods. But then if you've got a company which at times of high inflation isn't seeing the value of the goods go up, then there is something significantly wrong. But crucially, in the three months to June, Sainsbury's also saw that volumes were up, which is really important. And it does sort of demonstrate that the strategy is working. Sainsbury's has spent a shed load on keeping prices as low as possible. It's really been defending its record because supermarkets have been under attack by regulators, by politicians, by charities, because clearly food is something that we all need. And a lot of people have been struggling. There have been a lot of reports over the last week about the kinds of people who are now accessing food banks because they're just really struggling. But um, the Sainsbury's boss um, said that uh, prices for the 100 most popular grocery items were now lower than they were in March. Um, so a little bit more of good news for you and signs that inflation in food is finally starting to fall. So this sort of plays into a, a lot of um, discussion and headlines that we've seen really over the last few weeks weeks, with the government trying to push down prices, not just in food, but in all kinds of things. Lots of pressure on regulators to really get some of these basic necessities under control. So let's start with supermarkets because we've just been talking about Sainsbury's. So just in terms of plans to push down prices, what is the plan there, Laura? Yeah, so um, like you say, the government's been meeting with various different industries where it's pinpointed that there have been price rises or there might be some examples of what's been coined greedflation. So this is where companies raise prices or maintain high prices um, in a bid to kind of profit off rising inflation rather than reducing those costs when their costs reduce. Um, And we've had in the past week, we've had Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, um, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, all citing supermarkets as areas where prices aren't falling fast enough. 
And in fact, Andrew Bailey, who is obviously on the committee to help set interest rates and forecast inflation, um, said that in particular, one area of the Bank of England's failings in accurately forecasting inflation was that they expected food prices to have dropped back much more by now than they have done. Um, we've still got food price inflation at over 18% last month. So it has dropped a bit from its high, but it's still at 18%, which is very high. And so the government at the moment is, with all of these areas, kind of on this balancing act between not wanting to force regulation and price caps on industry, but trying to nudge them towards lowering prices um, without them having to bring in much stricter regulation. One of the ideas that the government was toying with is this kind of price cap on some essential items of food. A similar thing has been implemented in France where they've um, capped the price of a number of items. Um, but it's kind of too soon with the France case to tell how well that's worked or how that works in practice. The government here has mooted a kind of voluntary price cap. So they're going in very softly at the moment and having a lot of these meetings with industries to try and push them towards lowering prices. Because actually the price wars, which seem to be sort of cropping up now, particularly between the discounters and the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's, they stand to bring down prices far more effectively than any sort of price caps. Yeah, exactly. Competition is how the market should work. The likes of, you know, Sainsbury's and Waitrose should be fearful of the fact that Aldi and Lidl are eating up market share and they should want to retain customers. And that's why we've seen some of these price wars. You know, we had one over milk a few weeks ago, some over the essentials, um, like bread, for example, um, to try and draw people back into um, stores. Because quite often what happens is people will shift because they can save money. And then actually they'll find that the experience in some of those discount supermarkets that they might not have stepped in before is much better than they thought. And then they'll become a loyal customer there for life. So that's the last thing that the likes of, you know, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Morrison's, all of the others um, want. And interestingly, lots of people have pointed to the profit margins of supermarkets being relatively slim in comparison to the profit margins of food manufacturers. So we're talking the big giants that have brand recognition, like Unilever, for example, that's behind a lot of the big brand names. And so that might be an area that the government starts to look at next. But for the moment, it's been focused very much on those supermarkets. And we've heard an awful lot about petrol prices. And it was really interesting because I was hearing a discussion about the fact that cheap petrol prices used to be one of the ways that supermarkets used to bring customers into their stores. But because the discounters have been waging such a fierce battle to get people through the doors, people have been shipping up at the supermarkets to get petrol, but then turning the car around and going and shopping at Aldi and Lidl. So competition maybe not being quite as effective as it had been in the past. And it emerged that petrol retailers have been ripping off customers to the tune of 900 million quid. So what's the plan there? Yeah, I mean, this is another area where um, the Competition and Markets Authority was tasked with um, producing a report looking at petrol prices. And of course, what we had from the government was that fuel duty cut, and that was meant to hand all motorists a cut to the cost of filling up a tank of petrol. What it now appears to have transpired is that 
rather than passing that cut on to customers, uh, petrol retailers thought, oh, that's handy and nice and put that in their back pocket. I mean, I don't think it's quite as linear as that. I'm boiling it down. But essentially, the government handed out that fuel duty cut, but there was no responsibility, no legal bounds, no regulatory bounds on the petrol retailers to pass that on to customers. The government was just relying on competition working in markets to cut that down. And what we typically see is that Asda and Morrisons tend to set the price when it comes to petrol prices. They're usually the cheapest and then other supermarkets will cut their prices down to that level. What Asda and Morrisons, this report says, did this time was think, okay, well, we'll keep prices where they are for now and see if we lose any custom. And what that meant was the other retailers decided, okay, well, we don't need to go lower, so we'll just keep it at this price. And all that amounts to is motorists paying around 6p a litre more for petrol. The difference is even bigger with diesel. They were paying around 13p a litre more for diesel in the first five months of this year. And one stat that I thought was quite interesting from the report was that this year, 10% of the price that you pay at the pump for petrol is retailer profit. And that compares to 5% five years ago. So you can see how those profits have increased. And that's 10%, obviously, of a larger number as well, because petrol prices have risen. Um, So the government is really trying to shine a spotlight on it. And I think it's good that they're raising awareness of it. I think their solution leaves a little to be desired. So the government's solution to this is that petrol stations have to provide real-time price information so that people can check on an app or on a website before they go out to fill up their tank and see what the petrol prices are on the petrol stations in their area and pick accordingly. And the government's hope is that this will provide some competition and they cite other um, markets that have done it already. The reality is it's going to take a very long time for that system to come into place for petrol stations to have that real-time price reporting for that app or website or however it's presented to be up and running. The government also needs to task someone with kind of regulating that and monitoring that And also some of these options exist already. There are comparison websites out there where you can check different petrol stations. And it works if you've got a lot of petrol stations near you. But if I think of my parents who live in a very rural area, they have a choice of one petrol station to go to. So if that petrol station is charging a hard price, it's a choice of going to that or driving for miles and miles to go to the next nearest petrol station, which is probably going to cost you in petrol all the money that you might save. So I think if you're living in cities or, you know, suburbs, big towns where you've got lots of options nearby, that maybe that provides a good argument and a good solution. But those people in much more rural areas, it's not going to be any use to them other than them being exposed for, you know, paying higher prices, but they're still going to have to stomach it anyway. The timing of the change in strategy by Asda Morrison's is really interesting as well, because, of course, both businesses have had a change of ownership been taken over by private equity. So there have been all sorts of discussions in the newspapers about the impact that that might have had on the decision making. Um, we've been talking about petrol, been talking about food. Uh, we've spoken a lot about water recently, but the latest move that's been um, to focus on the poultry rate that some high street banks have been offering savers. The government's due to quiz bank bosses. Tell us more, Laura. So this is yet another area where the government is kind of pinpointing that competition is not working so well. And they're now in discussions with banks to try and 
shine a light, shine some publicity, some press attention on what the banks are offering. And so I think there's kind of two situations here. One, you can get much higher rates on savings, but you have to move your money. You have to be relatively digitally savvy as well to be able to go online, go onto some of these comparison websites, find the right savings account for you, and then shift your money. The majority, if not all of these top savings rates are available if you apply online, not if you apply in branch or via post. Um, And what the real issue is, is not for those people who can shop around and move their money, but for the people who are perhaps older, a bit more vulnerable, um, and don't have the ability to do that hunting around the money that's sitting in savings accounts and current accounts that's been sitting there for a long time, just isn't getting that much more than it was previously. Um, And so the government is trying to kind of pressure banks, ask them more questions about why they're not offering higher rates. And it's particularly the high street banks that they've got in their target here, because if we look at the best buy tables of the top rates, a lot of that is dominated by these challenger banks, these smaller banks. I mean, some of these challenger banks have been around for a very long time, but they're still kind of classed as challenger banks because they're not these high street names with that big brand recognition where people will often have their current account and leave their savings in those accounts with them. So another area where the government is trying to pressure them, but it's quite difficult to see what the government can do other than apply pressure here, because what the government needs is more people saving their money. And without getting into a kind of economics 101 lesson, part of the process of raising interest rates to try and combat inflation is to encourage people to save their money rather than spend it. And that helps to reduce inflation because there's less money out there being spent on items. Um, But if savers aren't being offered higher savings rates or savings rates near base rate, then they're not going to be encouraged to save. And that's the big battle that the government's got. People are facing higher prices, but they're not necessarily getting the rewards for saving their money. So that incentive to stash your money away for a future day isn't so much there for lots of people. And that's what the government's trying to tackle. Yeah, I mean, we were saying on last week's pod that the government's been having meetings with basically the ABC of regulators. And it is all about halving inflation, stopping people spending. Exactly. So Rishi Sunak set this target of halving inflation by the end of the year, which would see it dropping to about 5%. At the time that he made that claim, everyone was forecasting that that would be the case. And there was some commentary at the time, um, probably including for myself, saying, well, it's great to set a target that's really easy to achieve. Let's all do that in our lives. I mean, certain commentators, myself included, now have egg on their face because it doesn't look like such an easy target. And I think perhaps when the government set it, they focused all of their attention around, we're not going to have more handouts, we're not going to have more you know, help for your energy bills like you did have last winter. The biggest thing that we can do to help you is to halve inflation. Um, We can leave the debate about, you know, the government making that claim when it's not really in their power to halve inflation. We'll leave that debate for another day. But um, now it looks increasingly hard to hit that 5% figure. We're more than halfway through the year. We've still got very high inflation figures. And so the government is out in force trying to put pressure on all of those various industries to try and reduce prices so that it can hit that target. Um, Maybe that's a slightly cynical way of looking at it in that the government's just trying to hit its target, but um, it will also benefit, obviously, everyone if inflation does harm. 
I love the cynic in you, though, Laura. <laughs> it's a large part of me, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's let's keep being cynical because the government's actually also been one of the biggest winners of rising interest rates um, on our savings. Uh, it snagged a load more money in tax on our savings interest rates, uh, and you've got the figures. Exactly. So we had some latest figures out where the government itself estimates how much it's going to take in certain taxes. And one of those is the tax on your savings interest. So we have the personal savings allowance, which gives you a tax-free amount of savings interest that you can earn. For basic rate taxpayers, it's £1,000 a year. For higher rate taxpayers, it's £500 a year. And for additional rate taxpayers, they get no tax-free limit. So they pay tax on all of the savings interest they receive. Um, so typically in low interest rate times, those limits, that £1,000 and £500, was more than sufficient to cover even very wealthy individuals who had money sitting in cash savings accounts because the amount of interest that you were earning on your cash was pretty minimal. So to hit those limits, you'd have to have lots and lots of money in cash. Um, However, obviously, we've seen uh, savings amounts rise during the pandemic. So lots of people still have large amounts in savings and we've seen savings rates increase. And so that means more and more people are pushing up against those limits and having to pay tax on their savings quite often for the first time. Um, and the way that tax works is you're taxed on your savings interest at the same um, rate as your income tax. So basic rate rate taxpayers would pay 20%, higher rate taxpayers pay 40%, and additional rate taxpayers would pay 45%. So you've got that happening in one corner. In the other corner, you have the fact that the government has frozen those income tax bans. So we see more people being pushed into the next tax ban, more basic rate taxpayers becoming higher rate taxpayers, and more higher rate taxpayers becoming additional rate taxpayers, particularly because they've also lowered the threshold um, where you become an additional rate taxpayer. So all of this put together means that lots of people are losing that tax-free amount that they can um, get in savings interest before they pay tax um, and are paying tax on that savings interest. But all of that means the government's making more money as well. So you could argue that currently one of the biggest beneficiaries of rising interest rates and improving rates on cash savings is the government because it's estimated to make £6.6 .6 billion in tax from savers this year, just on the tax that's charged on savings interest. And that's in comparison to £3.4 last year. So £3 billion extra pounds going from savers into the government's back pocket as a result of all of those factors that I've just talked about. Oh, for that to be an issue in my family. However, my eldest <laughs> now has her first job, so I'm hoping she can start to pay for some of her own stuff, which would be kind of nice. And then maybe I can save some. Yeah. <laughs> in case I actually ever get to the point where I'm no longer splashing out for everything and can save some, what is the answer to avoiding having to pay this massive amount of tax? So ISAs are really the most obvious answer. So any money in a cash ISA um, isn't subject to tax. So it's in a tax-free wrapper. You won't pay the savings tax on it. Um, and so that is the solution. Now, for lots of years, people shunned cash ISAs, um, didn't bother paying into them because that personal savings allowance that I talked about before covered them enough and they weren't paying tax on their savings. 
but also because the interest rates on ISA accounts tend to be lower than those on um, conventional kind of non-ISA savings accounts. Interestingly, in this recent rates war, that gap has closed a little bit and the difference between ISA accounts and non-ISA accounts has narrowed a bit. And it's generally the case, I mean, you'd have to work out the sums based on your own personal circumstances, but it's generally the case that if you've breached your personal savings allowance and you're a higher rate or additional rate taxpayer, then you're likely to be better off looking at an ISA and accepting a lower interest rate, but not paying tax on your savings. Um, But it's worth definitely crunching the numbers and having a look because that previous mantra that lots of people touted of it's not worth having an ISA, the rates are too low, you'll be fine, um, not in an ISA, has definitely changed now. And that has actually caught some people out who haven't used cash ISAs in recent years and have got lots of money sitting in a savings pot because you can pay up to £20,000 a year into an ISA. But if you've got far more savings than that, then it's going to take you a number of tax years to move that money across, and- which obviously is a pipe dream for a lot of people He's at the dream. moment. But it's a pipe dream we can all dream of. <laughs> Certainly can. Cheers, Laura. Now, next up, we have our interview for this week. Nick Greenwood's job as manager of MyGo Opportunities Trust is to look for bargains in the investment trust space. He fishes for stuff where everyone else has lost interest. Dan Coatesworth spoke to him about the parts of the market that are catching his attention and why some unloved sectors might be worth another look. So, Nick, we've certainly seen quite a few, um, well, certainly there were previously popular investment trust sectors that now gone slightly out of favour. So I'm thinking things like infrastructure, renewable energy. In your sort of opinion, why have these areas gone out of favour? And do you think that there's opportunities to to buy um, what are now you know, investment trust trading at sort of dis- discounts that we haven't seen in a long time? Yeah, I mean, discounts as wide as I've ever seen them, and I've been around for um, uh, for quite some time. Um, I mean, the largest 12 positions in the investment trust I run, which is a special situations trust investing in, you know, special situations like this in the investment trust market, uh, the average discount has gone up to 31. So, you know, I've never seen that before. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of value around at the moment. I think when you talk about renewables and some of the alternatives, these were designed as sort of higher yield products to cope with yield starvation, i.e. going back a couple of years, um, it's almost, you know, interest rates were virtually zero, or certainly deposit rates were virtually zero. These products, you know, were created, these investment trusts were created to to, to, to solve that problem. The trouble have now is, I mean, you know, I've been in the markets of maybe four decades, and I bought earlier this week um, a two-year gilt um, PA uh, on a yield of 5.2%. Now, um, I've never... Bought, well, I never bought a gilt for these years. It's not my sort of thing, really. But you know, you've got a you've got a, a safe return, um, and, and the these infrastructure and renewable funds were yielding sort of four, five, six percent not not long ago. Um, maybe that's got to be eight uh, in in these conditions. So it, you know, simplistic interest rates and deposit rates are a totally different place from where they were, uh, which has removed demand for these funds. And if you've got more, you know, you've got an oversupply situation, got you know. You know, the, the balance between supply and demand is you've got lots of supply and not a lot of demand, then share prices have to keep falling until that moves back into equilibrium. And I think simplistically that's what we're seeing. Um, also in the background, you've got, you know, the a big users of investment trusts have been the old private wealth or wealth managers. Um, we've got this merger coming up between Investec and Rathbones, the, the continuing of the consolidation of the, of the wealth management industry, which are big clients of the 
big users of the investment trust market, you know, once you get to a pot of a hundred billion, um, and you know, maybe one percent of that pot is a billion, that's rather, you know, to, to move the needle, uh, these big organizations are gonna need a hell of a lot of stock in whatever they invest in. So it's debatable, you know, how much they'll be able to use investment trust going forward. And that's that slow burn is also going on in the background. But I mean, I think this chucks up opportunities because the lack of demand is for the high yield product, not from the underlying assets. So the only one that I bought, that I completed my buying, that I can talk about really is Aquila European Renewables. Uh, and in that case, you know, demand is quite high for solar plants in Iberia and, um, and wind farms in, in Scandinavia. So there's an arbitrage developing there. You know, that traded you know, month or so ago at a sort of, you know, 22% discount, and a lot of trusts are now on that sort of level. But they own assets that other people want. And we hear anecdotally that a lot of U.S. investors are, are, are you know, looking at uh, the, these investment trusts, looking for, for opportunities to, to, to pick up assets on the cheap. I think you know, certainly, you know, the last sort of five years or so, um, perhaps up until this year, there's been a general sort of message to say, like, diversify your portfolio, put it into things like infrastructure, you'll get a nice, steady yield there. So I think there'll be lots of people holding these investment trusts in their portfolio now thinking, well, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm perhaps, you know, I've seen the value of them fall. Um, do I perhaps take a loss and then switch into cash? Or is it just a case of sitting tight? Because obviously, they'll still be paying dividends, won't they? So um it, it, it's i know i know perhaps you you're you're not able to give exact advice but um what would go through in your thought process about if you had to weigh up that decision yeah i think most of the selling we're seeing and there may be a little bit of retail selling um happening because people have been unnerved by the very sharp falls in share prices but it seems the lot of the, the bulk of the selling is coming from institutions um you know life companies fund management groups that are getting redemptions um, and um, they're being forced into the unwilling market and you know, selling into markets where there isn't a lot of demand. So I think that's, that's, that is the, the cause of the fall, not that the world is suddenly realizing there's something fundamentally wrong with these funds. It's just there's a lack of demand. For them. They're doing what they said they would on the tin. So, you know, I think certainly looking at my own actions in response to this, uh, is that I'm looking for the odd thing to buy rather than other than to sell. You mentioned that companies in the US are perhaps looking for assets that are uh, attractive and obviously now available a, a bit cheaper. Do, do you think that that would lead to just offers for assets that investment trusts own or actually takeovers for the investment trust itself? I think it would probably take the entire portfolio in the whole structure. It's, it's probably the most likely way ahead because... Um, if the if the funds still exist, they still need these assets to generate the income to, to pay their dividends. Um, so I think that uh, you might find a U.S. institution that decides to buy, you know, an entire trust, um, getting assets that they they actually want to own, probably at a modest discount, um, but a big premium to where share prices are at the moment. And is uh, that? So do you think that's going to be just in renewable energy or, or on sort of a broader basis? Right the way across the sector. I mean, the discounts are wide. Investment trust generally, um, um, there are other factors going on that parts of the market. But just thinking off the top of my head, we've seen um, Industrials Reek, which is a mixed like industrial trust, um, be sold to Blackstone, Civitas, agreed to a takeover bid. Amazon Japan is going to merge with Nippon Active Value. I think yesterday, one of the Blackstone bond funds announced it's going to order one down. 
we're going to see a lot of corporate activity over over the coming weeks you know in reaction to these uh, wide discounts so i guess we we've talked about things that are seeing declines in valuation but w- one area of the market is actually doing quite well has been japan I mean, it, it, I, I can't remember the last time that's you know, almost universally all you know investment commentators and fund managers are saying this is this is a really good place to put your money, and and we have seen you know, things like the Nikkei index, um, you know, shoot up this year. But, but do you think actually now it's such a crowded trade? Is this the point at which you might think about well, I've made a bit of money, maybe I want to redeploy that somewhere else? I think probably this time is different. I mean, I ignored these trusts when they first come out. The 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 activism trust that um because you know many times over the last four decades i've been told that this time is different in japan maybe it really is this time um you know there are great changes going on in corporate governance there and away from the big international stocks which have been under pressure to reform for years and years and years the domestic and smaller company stocks you know, are incredibly cheap relative to other markets in the world so you know half of the of the of the stocks listed are below book um, 700 stocks in Japan are below, trading below half book. We consider that the average small cap fund has 40% in cash. I, you know, you're a big discounted book, which is in itself is you know, has a lot of cash. Um, you know, it, 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 it is incredibly cheap, and that value could be unlocked. We've got reforms from the Tokyo Stock Exchange, which now means that anyone that trades below the book has to explain. And naming shaming does work in Japan, uh, and there's a change in attitude. I mean, for, for years, Westerners have gone in to bring about change and to be rebuffed, and um, very few have succeeded. I think now, with the generational change that's going on, a pragmatic proposal will get a hearing. Um, if it's typical American asset strippers, they'll still get rebuffed. Um, but when you look at um, some of the numbers, I mean, you know, the, the takeover bids have doubled over the last three years. Share buybacks are at record levels. You know, but this is but it is very much um, domestic Japan rather than international big name Japan. It's set. Those have been under the pressure because they've been operating international markets for years. But this is more the sort of the local bid and small cap, and uh, there's a lot of value to be released there. So I think that, that, that there's several trusts, aren't there, on on the UK stock market that sort of focus on the sort of medium, smaller side of things. Any of them yeah. sort of catching your, your your eye worth worth taking a closer look? Well, I've, we've really focused on the two that are focused on activism, which is the um, AVI Japan Fund and on active value. I think that's where the greatest value is going to be released. Um, so uh, we, we we have a little bit of Atlantis Japan, which I think potentially uh, has had a, he's had a difficult time and there may be some corporate change brought about there. But basically, our view is is that activism is, is beginning to work in Japan. I know, obviously, as a strategy, you're looking for investment trusts that in your opinion look look mispriced but clearly you, you need a catalyst to sort of up, to drive that valuation back up to sort of fairer levels so i mean how long do you normally have to wait for you know this trigger point to, to happen i mean are you sometimes buying things and sitting on them for for months or even years before something happens well we we do educate our shareholders when we're doing our presentation that you know the strategy is a little bit like watching paint dry um, you know, a lot of these things be gloriously unchanged for a long period of time, and then suddenly they're not, and you get this explosive move. I think boiling it down, markets, fund managers, um, multi asset managers, etc. You know, they, they're judged on a very, very short term basis, um, and therefore they don't tend to look beyond eighteen months. Anything beyond that, you know, two years and beyond, is is effectively forever. You know, and 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 people don't want to play there. So 
if we judge that the catalyst might be a couple of years down the road, we're quite happy to buy into that situation and uh, and, and say, wait. And what you find, if you look at the long-term track record of MIGO, is that most of the gains have been made over two or three short periods of time when you get this explosive loop. You get rising NAVs and narrowing discounts. And that mathematically is a very powerful combination. So we don't mind if the catalyst is somewhere down the line because then probably we'll be able to have the field to ourselves when we're trying to buy into the situation. Well, Nick Greenwood from MIGO Opportunities Trust, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. A pleasure. That's everything for this week. Thanks a lot for joining us. Next week, Dan and I will be back with all the latest markets news, as well as an interview delving into the investment opportunities in Vietnam. So join us then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.